Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to my Librarian, this is your host, Heather Peterman, on a lovely Monday evening, early, wherever you are. It's a beautiful day, and I hope you're having a great where you are. You know, this last week, kind of a crazy week for me. I hope you're doing all right. Uh, we had a, a funeral to go to Denver, so, you know, the, the mixed feelings of being sad about a death in the family, also the joy of seeing loved ones that you haven't seen forever. You need to go to a new place. I got to go to Denver for the first time, so it was amazing. Like a miracle of the world, just seeing moms like that. And it all reminds me of my own humanity in that I am a plains girl, like low level, and going up to the mountain, the lack of oxygen and the altitude really um, made me feel like a little bit dizzy all the time. So it is good to be back home, but I still have the beauty of the mountains in my mind, and I'm just glad I got to go see that and see all my family, my cousin, aunt, and it was lovely. And my um, little grand well, what would you call them when you're it's your nieces the niece you know the cousin's children so it's like my my uncle's grandchildren you know that kind of thing so it was quite amazing and I know um everybody always asks you know like oh did you see the pot and I'm like I saw places where they sold it it was just so busy you know I didn't you know it's not like it's something I would probably do but it's really available and it's kind of nice to be able to just see that in the part of this country there is some legalization and it's an interesting thing so yes i did see that but i didn't go in you know not not a lot of time for that kind of thing so very interesting um let's see what else is going on uh this week there has been a lot of um, preparation for going back to school. There's so much, uh, you know, you take for granted that you really enjoy having like a summer's off, like for someone who works in education. But you know how little when you're a little kid, you know, and you start seeing back to school sales, how it makes you kind of irritated and a little bit nervous. Well, teachers feel that way too. So if you know teachers in your life and librarians that, um, you know, are academics in general, give them your love because, you know, we're all going back. And on one hand, I'm super excited because I miss, I miss it. You know, I really miss helping people and, and that, but I also kind of really like having 
like the decadent lifestyle of just, you know, sleeping into whenever you need to. So I, I get it. It's kind of tough. But anyway, so I hope that you're all doing well. And uh, I have a lot of news for you this week. I'm really excited about it. And um, it's been kind of a one of those weeks where a lot of violence and violence can mean a lot of things where there's uh, obviously really horrifying, sad events going on where there's been active shooters in multiple cities and um, just seems like, what is it, like a mercury retrograde kind of thing. It just feels like there's so much wrong. And then that starts off on social media, all the people fighting for different sides of issues and nobody's listening to each other. And it feels like there's a lot less love in the world. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about ways of thinking when you have such a horrible situation and to change your mindset. So it's healthier for you and it's healthier for other people. So we will get to that very soon. But first, I think I'm going to do one little ad for Freedomizer Radio, and then we're going to go right into news. So hold on, and I'll be right back. Please learn more about Freedomizer Radio by going to freedomizerradio.com and also Facebook us right at freedomizerradio.com. Catch you there. Mm-hmm. And I'm having my own technical issues. I can't remember where things are. So I'm just going to talk at you and pretend like nothing's happening, right? It's all good. So where did I? Do you, you ever think like, what is going on where you can't find? Oh, there it is. Okay. So I have one more thing, and then we're good. Let's see. I'm going to put one more ad on while I'm looking for this stuff. Do you want to live a happy and healthy barefoot lifestyle? Join Barefoot is Legal, Saturdays, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time to learn your rights barefoot. There are no laws against bare feet in public, and we are here to dispel the myths and empower you to stand up for your rights. Join full-time barefooters and victim legal advocates Nick Pierce and Richard Johnson on Freedomizer Radio for the Barefoot is Legal show Saturdays, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific, and check out our website at barefootislegal.org. Radio, where we have a 24-7 chat room where you can come and share what's going on in the world with people of like mind. Anything and everything against the New World Order. Dial 347-324-3704 to catch our live shows. Getting at 9 in the morning, Pacific Standard Time, Monday through Friday till midnight, 
and 9 to 9 on Saturday and Sunday. Take us to the beach. Take us to the park. Take us on a walk with the dog. Only on Freedomizer Radio. Okay, we're back. So, for the Intellectual Freedom News, I have some stuff recorded for you, and I'm trying to get it to pop up here. Let's see if I can get it to work. Hmm, that's very odd. I might have to play it directly. Where could it be? So, guys, yeah, technical things happening. It's very weird. Like, I'm trying to get into my audio files, and I am having problems doing that. Yeah, live show problems. Dear God. I'm just like, oh, I'm so close. There it is. I see it. So, if I just go back into this, where would it be? I just don't see news. Okay. Well, I'm going to try playing it off of this, and we'll see if I can make it work for you. And welcome back to the news of Liberty Librarian. Today we have lots of really good stuff, so I'm going to get going on it right away. Um, As always... A lot of my news comes from the Intellectual Freedom blog from the Office for Intellectual Freedom of the American Library Association. They have great links to news, and you can find the, a lot of the news I cover today there and more. So there's just so much news every week that uh, they cover, and they do an excellent job of it. So please check that out if you're really into the stuff I'm talking about. Uh, there's more. There's more than what I could ever cover. And sometimes there's a little bit of follow-up from uh, past week's story. So with that in mind, uh, one of the first things I'm going to talk about today is uh, from the WXPR website. Um, They talk about there are many media organizations bringing attention to the First Amendment. And because there's a knowledge shortage, and I didn't realize it. Um, this was written by Ken Crawl on July 31st. So what's going on is uh, a lot of Wisconsin radio and television stations are joining in a national public awareness campaign to bring attention to the importance of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Um, there's more than 20 state broadcast associations that are a part of this. It's called the Think First campaign. First has a one in it instead of an I. So they're asking the radio and TV members, um, uh, the audience, to support the campaign in kind by airing spots on radio and television stations, putting links on the station's websites and social media platforms. Uh, What it started with the Nebraska's broadcast Association and their leader. And here's a quote from President Michelle Vetterkind, WBA president, says, their media association put this campaign together. They put a lot of time and money into that, and we have we greatly appreciate it. They're offering it 
for free to the other state broadcasters associations. So as far as I know, that more than 20 other state broadcaster associations, press associations are participating in the campaign. And newspapers are also involved. So this is, in the last year, there was a civic survey taken near, um, this is our students that took this survey, and nearly four in 10 students in the Annenberg Public Policy Center survey said they couldn't even name one of the five freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment. Now, that makes me feel really sad, but it doesn't surprise me. That's why it's so important to, to share this, especially with young people who, um, you know, they're being force-fed. You'd think the government would talk a little bit more about uh, the things that make our country special and unique and what freedoms we have, but they're not even telling students that because they want people to think they don't have these rights. So here are the first five freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment. Those are religion, speech, press, the right to assemble, and the right to petition. So it's just kind of terrifying to me that high school students and, and older people don't know that these are the freedoms that make our country great. And I really think it's important to work with people if they believe that we aren't don't have freedoms to show them what we have and also to protect those freedoms at all costs because we are very lucky to have them and every day I see our freedoms being chipped away at so be aware and uh, this campaign that this think first campaign runs through December 31st of this year so they want people to learn more about the First Amendment by visiting their website, which is called www.thinkfirstamendment.org. And this it's just written out the way it sounds, thinkfirstamendment.org. So go there, learn more about the First Amendment, and they have some freebies. So if you're a librarian like me, uh, you can post some stuff on your boards, which I'm planning on doing too. So, and if you are interested in uh, posters and that kind of thing for libraries, um, send me a note on Facebook on the Liberty Librarian page and I will be happy to send you more information and other great resources for uh, decorating your library space and letting people know more about the First Amendment. Pretty important stuff. So, next. You know, the census is coming up and uh, this year, they're changing a lot of the ways that they've done it instead of knocking door to door everywhere and calling people, they are going to have it more online. But according to a Slate article by Jessica Rosenworcel on July 29th, the census could undercount people who don't have internet access. And this is a new problem. There's um, many debates about how they're doing it. Um, will they or won't they? Um, they? Because, you know, is it, are they not thinking it's important? Uh, the citizenship question on the form, 2020 census form, uh, they're thinking they might have that. But um, it's back and forth that um, the worrisome part is undercounting the population of the United States, which could affect how billions in federal funds are distributed because they'll have bad information. And it, this also includes broadband, which is of great interest to libraries as well. 
So for the first time in our history, the U.S. Census will prioritize collecting responses online. In practice, this means that most households will get a letter in the mail directing them to fill out a form on the website. For households that do not respond uh, to the, the letters or um, any of that, um, paper forms may follow, but a census taker could eventually be sent to collect the data in person. But what's kind of suspicious about that is that in, it's an effort to increase internet responses there will be a reduced effort to call in homes, knock on doors, and get responses in the mail. They're trying to cut corners and uh, save a little money. I get it. And the Census Bureau has said that they plan to hire 125,000 fewer staff members than during the last go-around 10 years ago. So because it's counting on this online effort in conjunction with local resources to secure participation. and I'm going to say as an aside, um, somebody sends me a survey, there's a 90% chance I don't fill it out. So I'm just really curious if you're not having that human contact, how, how successful this census is going to be anyway. So it makes sense um, if you're thinking about um, it going door to door, it does seem a little antiquated, but um, a technology first approach will save resources and may reflect how many of us live our lives because we're connected but it also creates a problem for communities without reliable access to broadband so what do you do if you don't have internet how do you answer this uh, how do you answer the census um, many Americans lack broadband at home according to um, the Federal Communications Commission about 21 million Americans live in areas without high-speed service and the bulk of them are in rural areas so the, the situation is worse than official numbers suggest however this uh, the method we use to count which household internet access which do not has also another serious flaw in it it assumes that a, if a single customer can get broadband in a census block then service must be available throughout the entire block. As a result, official data significantly overstates the presence of broadband nationwide. In fact, a study found that as many as 162 million people across the United States do not use the internet at broadband speeds. The gap between 21 million and 162 million raises big questions about broadband coverage. It turns the digital divide into a chasm. So there are so many people that might not be reached by this census because they really just don't have access to digital media of any sort. So anyway, on top of this, many households cannot simply uh, afford the broadband service. So the Pew Research Center reported that nearly half of adults who earn less than $30,000 do not have broadband service at home. Moreover, more, more than uh, roughly one in four uh, Hispanic and black adults uh, depend on their smartphones for internet access. As a result, data caps can limit their ability to do much online. This, when compounded with uh, the heated rhetoric that has already surrounded the census, may put participation by parts of the population in total jeopardy. Baby. Ooh, ooh, ooh. sorry. So, 
what does this look like on the ground? Um, uh, consider a census tract in Poplar Grove, Utah, as the St Salt Lake Tribune has reported, census officials describe this area as one of the most difficult communities to count. It's a place where populations have had been hard to survey, even with traditional efforts. Many households speak limited English. Many are low income. During the last census, one out of every three residents was not counted during the initial round of responses. As a result, extensive outreach from canvassers on the ground was required to ensure the full community was counted. So, according to this time, like they estimate that one in nine residents do not have access to the internet at home. So what happened to this community? The ones that they couldn't even hardly get door-to-door -door knocking um, and having language barriers. If they also don't have internet, they're gonna have even less of a turnout um, for for the census. So it's going to come back with really inaccurate numbers, which is bad because a lot of the uh, programs and uh, funding for different uh, populations is based on the census, right? Even though it's every 10 years, it's kind of weak, um, it's what they use. So I, I mean, it's a little bit freaky and people I think aren't really thinking about this very much. So getting it right does matter. And if like this, I just think that there's going to be so much shortchanging for for many programs, which could be funding for education, healthcare, agriculture, and investment in infra infrastructure. So it can mean the difference between communities growing and thriving or being left behind, especially poor communities. So think about this. Uh, talk to your lawmakers, and uh, I would say we we really need to be worried about how the census is going to play out. I, I think we're a little bit off on that yet. Um, we run the risk of having those who lack a connection cut off from the count. And I, I wonder if uh, sending, sending something to the White House, to our government, um, letters would probably be in order. Um, talk to your local lawmakers and, and see if they can have a word in on it too. So something to think about with the census, which seems like a really boring topic, but I got really excited about it when I read the article and like how much potential harm it could really do to our whole country. So I think that is something to worry about. Okay, there is, I'm going to, uh, okay, there's a, a newspaper online, the Washington Examiner, on Monday, August 5th, today, they have an opinion piece in there that talks about two legal, oh, it was on July 29th, they, they're tricky that way at the beginning, they put their different dates at the top, so, the, um, two legal reforms could end social media censorship for good by a Tyler Grant uh, of the Washington Examiner. Um, I am going to just say this right now. I don't totally agree with this article. Um, I think that it is interesting how they think that um, censorship on Facebook and the big social media giants um, can 
take away money from businesses and uh, they're looking at it uh, from a monopolistic standpoint that the big tech companies have grown so large as to constitute public forums and therefore users have a constitutional right to access platforms free from free from viewpoint discrimination so a lot of the um, Facebook groups I'm a part of they talk about um, being censored and some groups are even shut down for having um, unpopular viewpoints according to Facebook and or that you know for whatever reason it's offensive and I've looked at a lot of these and there's not a lot offensive it's it's an opposing viewpoint that that is it but to the extent that um, they're talking about this, they're right. A few social media companies have captured the lion's share of the marketplace. Example would be Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. They get a lot of money. So big tech critics argue that platform access is a civil right to the extent a user doesn't engage in unlawful or unprotected speech. If denied access, they think a user ought to be able to obtain an injunction from a court and perhaps be awarded statutory damages. This is the part where I think it's a little extreme. Um, is, is it a constitutional right on a website that offers you the service for free, but the way they make their money is by advertising and data mining. So is it actually a free public forum? And that's where I think they're wrong on it and I mean obviously these big companies are going to fight it um, I would hope that they they listen and then they back off on the monitoring mostly because I do think some of these groups um, especially if you um, have a private group I don't see why that would be a group that they would monitor to that point there, there are hate groups. There are that which, which they um, are terrified of them. And, I, you know, I admit I'm glad to see them gone. But at the same time, there are groups that, um, you know, who's next? Who's the next to get cut? You know, if you don't have free speech for everyone, then it's just a matter of what is uh, something that, you know, makes them worry, you know, if, you know, it's that public opinion thing and that that's where it is coming down to. So to go back into the article, um, they talk the merits of this legal argument aside, um, that you don't need to have a tenuous and debatable first amendment claim, which is where they're, they've kind of been heading, but it's, it's dangerously, um, hard to prove in a courtroom. So first we have to acknowledge that the economic gains from the relationship between social media companies and users is pretty one-sided. The social media companies are making all the money. So on one hand, the users have the benefit of the free services that you can post photos, videos, and thoughts. And in rare cases, you can gain fame and wealth from large following. Brands and companies also receive the benefit of free advertising on platforms. Yet, on the other hand, social media giants profit from the users, making advertising dollars, 
um, profit off of individual users. And it's just disproportionate to anything that um, any benefit that the users derive. So this is where they're saying it's um, more lucrative for companies than it is beneficial for uh, these millennials to post online. Um, social media services are free and individuals agree to the company's terms of use. So theoretically, we know that we're agreeing to this, this inequity. So what about when a conservative speech on social media is limited, censored, or entirely banned? Social media companies already possess all the data from the user as well as the information from the engagement of other users with the banned or censored user's content. And it's unlikely social media companies would be unable to eliminate the information gained from a user after the fact. So this is where the twist is, is that let's say they, um, they ban a conservative uh, influencer on Facebook. They have all of their data, their, uh, the people that they're connected to, they, I mean, do they use it? And I think that's the, the big question right there. Um, there's uh, states could allow for standing for ill-gotten gains from user data after being banned. User's data was sold after being banned. Yeah, if you're banned and they, they can still sell your information, they still own it. So, or if discussion of a banned user drove traffic that led to a social media giant profiting, that ought to be considered an illegal gain since the contractual benefit a user possessed by access has been terminated. So they're no longer a customer, but they're still benefiting from that customer. You see what I'm saying? So the privacy standpoint is more important to me though. States could enact legislation that requires social media companies to essentially buy a user out if censored or banned in order to forfeit privacy. There's no evidence to indicate social media companies purge all the information on deplatformed users. Um, I think what will happen with this is instead of them buying you out, they will be forced to wipe your information from their drives once you're banned, which makes it very much harder to come back if you have a limited time where you're unbanned, you know, that kind of thing. So that I think makes it complicated right there. And since they don't, um, they say a banned user should be compensated. I don't think this will ever happen. Uh, I, I think it's folly to think that a private company would like first of all agree to this and second of all be forced to do this. They have way too much lobbying power and I don't think it'll ever come out this way. It seems very one-sided and honestly I think it would totally um, implode the whole social media system if this kind of stuff goes through. So on one hand, uh, hooray that they're taking our privacy seriously, but the way they're going about it, it seems uh, like it won't ever happen. So in the end, they say social media access is necessary for social relevance. If social media companies choose to ban or censor posts that aren't unlawful, they ought to be forced to compensate users for gains received after the user no longer enjoys the benefit of such a service. Balancing the economic outcomes of users and social media companies will increase openness and encourage more speech while diminishing privacy abuses. So what I'd like
like to see is that social media um, takes less advantage and um, is more free speech um, platform for uh, banning and censoring posts. And I don't think we need to have a law to say to do that. I just, I feel like we should have more options. I'm, I'm hoping that somebody will come up with a system that um, is a replacement for Facebook that we can all migrate to. Uh, and so far, I've not seen any really great options. And every time it gets close, then something changes in the privacy, and, and I can't recommend it. But it's something to think about that they are looking at lawsuits. They're looking at ways to uh, stop social media from gaining so much from people that they've banned. And also to find a way, and this is probably the best thing about it, is find a way to um, make them not as eager to ban people who have opposing viewpoints. So we'll have to keep an eye on that, right, kids? Okay. This will lead me right into Speaking of censorship by big media and um, social media and um, our big tech giants, um, Tulsi Gabbard, U.S. Congresswoman, um, she was speaking um, with attendees at the California Democratic Party State Convention in this picture. And this was in the, um, the website called InsideSources.com. So Tulsi Gabbard is suing Google for $50 million over censorship claims. Now. She filed a lawsuit against Google because she said that Google purposefully suspended her Google Ads account for several hours after Gabbard participated in the first presidential debates in June. The move comes as conservatives continue to rally around President Donald Trump against Google over censorship concerns. So this is kind of interesting because, you know, I, I think that um, some of these ads can make or break some of the, ca the campaigns, right? So we live in a time of unprecedented political upheaval and division in the United States. Uncertainty and mistrust in American institutions, most notably the United States government, are at record highs, Gabbard states in her lawsuit. Everything from basic norms of civility and compromise to the sanctity of American elections suddenly seems in flux. American one, Americans wonder how we got here, and they want to know where we're going. Google plays favorites, and without, without any warning, no transparency, and no accountability until now. So she is saying that her campaign workers um, and people on her campaign work frantically to try to understand why Google took the ad account offline and claimed Google changed their answer several times before finally reinstating the account. So... What she said was that the uh, Google suspension of the account at exactly the wrong time is not a great mystery. Google, or someone at Google, didn't want Americans to hear Tulsi Gabbard's speech, so it silenced her, according to the lawsuit. So this happened time and time again across Google platforms. Google controls one of the largest and most important forums for political speech in the entire world, and it regularly silences voices it doesn't like and amplifies voices it does. And this is the rub. You know, I, I'm associated with a lot of third-party candidates, and this is not uncommon. Not only does Google, but other media sources don't give the voice to all the candidates. 
And when you're running a government election, all the candidates need a voice. And when you have a corporation that's sort of the middleman, how how can they even get away with this? You know, they they should be impartial. They should be completely impartial. And this is where the lawsuit's coming up, is that um, Google's such big business that it can make or break this campaign for her. And it looks like it has. So Google has clarified that they said several times in past hearings that no one person controls when accounts or content get taken down. Logarithms uh, uh, control most moderation and sometimes logarithms make uh, mistakes. So how come it's making mistakes on certain people? That's a good question. According to the lawsuit, um, the Gabbard campaign purchased a large number of ads in response to a spike in Google searches about Gabbard after the presidential debates. A tech lobbyist familiar with the matter said it makes sense why Google would suspend her ad account in response because a sudden large purchase looks like fraud. So they said that a Google spokesperson also told the New York Times that Gabbard's purchase triggered automatic suspension over fraud concerns. So you spend a bunch of money and they just let it automatically go to fraud. You know, you think that humans would be involved in some of this decision making, especially with big money purchases. Little ads, you can kind of see how things get swept away, but um, why this? Why? Why now? And um, something so timely, you think that they'd have humans that would double check too. But I digress. So they said that this made a, a fraud alert for her. Gabbard claims that Google silenced her because she frequently criticizes Google and its business practices. So is that the reason or is it just um, a coincidence? Good question. When Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren called for the breakup of big tech companies, including Google back in March, Gabbard tweeted her support of the policy position. And Warren followed up her call to action with Facebook ads, which Facebook temporarily suspended for copyright infringement because she used their logo. And then the ads were later reinstated. Um, what Elizabeth Warren did instead of doing a lawsuit, um, she said, thanks for restoring my posts. You know, calling attention to it, but in a classier way. So there, there are a lot of ways you can react to this. And I, you don't really want to make enemies with the big the biggies like Google and Facebook, right? Especially if you're a, po a politician and, you know, you may need to work with them in some other ways. But it is frustrating as heck. So now Google is facing increased antitrust scrutiny. And Google has made common cause with the conservative Koch Foundation, um, funding several conservative groups in the Koch uh network to publish op-ed studies and white papers opposing antitrust investigations of big tech. Gabbard also re-referenced Google's efforts to block conservative media outlet Breitbart, Breitbart, Breitbart um, from advertising through Google. Um, it's important to note that Breitbart has been among Google's staunchest critics 
alleging that the company routinely censors conservative viewpoints, she said. Um, the conservative lawyer thinks Gabbard's lawsuit is a cry for attention. It has so many problems, it's hard to know where to begin, said attorney Gabriel Maller. First, Gabbard's campaign says Google Ads is a state-created public forum, therefore subject to the constraints of the First Amendment. And he says, nope. The campaign is also says Google is subject to free speech and association rights protected by the California Constitution. Also note, the campaign thinks apparently apart from the debate night issue that it can hold Google liable for publishing misleading and deceptive ads of third parties. Note, CDA 230. So this has also happened in March where um, Representative David Nunes from California, Republican, uh, sued Twitter over censorship and defamation claims, but lawyers also dismiss his case as frivolous and a distraction from what they see as bigger issues with big tech, like privacy violations and anti-competitive practices. So there are a lot of politicians out there that are pretty upset with our big tech. So something to think about. Once again, I don't think like throwing around crazy lawsuits all the time is good for our country. But I also think it's nice to see that people in more power in Congress um, are actually trying to make changes. We'll see how it goes. I think it's not really, um, since there, these are private industry, it's going to be really hard to push the First Amendment laws with that. So two articles about the First Amendment in a row. That's pretty amazing. So. Next, I'm going to take a little break, and we are going to pay some bills, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the craziness in the world that's been going on this past week with the, the shootings and uh, the violence that is exploding, and then people flipping out on social media because they can't talk to each other. So I will be back in just a few, and we will see you soon. You are listening to Freedom Rider Radio, where freedomizers freedomize freedom. How would you like to make your work more enjoyable, be more creative and relaxed, all while sitting at your desk? That's exactly what my Serenity Rug has done for me. This revolutionary footrest, I can't even call it a footrest, because this thing encourages movement of your feet, which results in more blood flow. While traditional footrests advocate the motionless placement of your feet, I found that I'm unconsciously digging my feet into the long, soft grass strands of the Serenity Rug. It delivers an incredibly relaxing sensation that closely resembles the feeling of an exotic foot massage. If you have ever had a foot massage that made you want to stay there for hours, you know what I'm talking about. If you have not heard about the Serenity Rug, check them out at serenityrug.com and join the exclusive Serenity Rug community and enjoy a feeling of comfort and relaxation that most will never experience. They've sold out before, so I suggest you do your feet a favor and grab one of these. Again, that's serenityrug.com. Do you want to live a happy and healthy barefoot lifestyle? Join Barefoot is Legal, Saturdays, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time to learn your rights to be barefoot. 
There are no laws against bare feet in public, and we are here to dispel the myths and empower you to stand up for your rights. Join full-time barefooters and victim legal advocates Nick Pierce and Richard Johnson on Freedomizer Radio for The Barefooters Legal Show Saturdays, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific, and check out our website at barefootislegal.org. Tune in every Monday with your host, Heather Biederman, for The Liberty Librarian. Liberty Librarian, your home for intellectual freedom news and commentary. Every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Central, and 6 p.m. Eastern. All intellectual freedom fighters are always welcome at our home on Freedomizer Radio. Join us. Hey, that was me. That was my ad. That was cool. So, you know, yeah, I'm just like stunned when I hear my own voice on the radio. It's really weird. If you ever guys, if you get a chance to do it, it's totally bizarro. But it's kind of cool to hear that there's an ad for me. So I'm really glad that you're listening with me. Uh, the news of the world is pretty important to me. And... I wanted to talk a little bit today about what's been going on in the news and in the world. And everyone is very frightened and scared and it makes us angry and worried. And I'm I'm worried about you. I'm worried about me, but I'm more worried about how it's affecting people. And if you don't if you're under a rock, this week last week there was mass shootings in both Uh, Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas. And so far, they say the shootings have left at least 31 people dead. And they're saying that it's, there's reasons for each, but it's, it feels like to me, there's a mindlessness to this kind of violence. And I'm really worried about how our media reacts to it. And my friend Kara posted a really interesting article today about um, what's the right way for us to deal with these shootings. And, and a lot of it is on the media side. How, how they deal with it, it affects how people react. I thought it was really interesting. It's um, the the article. I'll post a link to this on uh, Facebook page of Liberty Librarian, and it's from a website called OpenSourceDefense.org. And this um, was a really interesting, longer read. It's what is going on with mass shootings, lessons learned from from past solved problems. Now, what was really interesting about this is they talked about waking up to the news and it, it it keeps going. The news keeps going about it because that's their business. Their business is to, to promote the stories and to let you know everything and all the details. But the problem with it is that the more the news overshares, People get ideas, and and why and the ideas that they get are to do the same thing, 
because they see it. They might not have even thought about it, but they go, that's a good idea. That guy, he's remembered. He's famous. And that's totally not what I would hope that would come out. I, I mean, we like to see news. I like reading the news. I like knowing everything. But people have been sharing this idea about not remembering the person who did the horrible things, but to remember the people who were courageous, those who were heroes, to remember the victims of what happened and their good lives, the good things that they did and the love that was um, is shared by their families and friends. And I think that's really important. We can live in a world of fear and terror and we can let you know, it's like they say, it sounds always crazy to say it, but it's like you let the terrorists win when they freak you out so much that that's all you can do. That's all you can talk about. So one of the things that's tricky about this is that it leads to people wanting something to be done. And there you go. See, they had guns. We should have gun control. Or see... More people should have guns so they could have stopped them. You know, I mean, there's so many different things that are coming out of this. But the problem is, is to jump right to solutions. And that's what the author mentions is the common pitfall is to jump right to solutions without first agreeing on the problem. So, for example, and they talk about the guns rights crowd um, will say this while mass shootings are on the upswing. They are a very small fraction of the overall murder rate. An overall murder rate is as low as it's ever been in modern times, on the back of a 30-year trend of nearly unmitigated improvement. So less people are being killed. And then there's an assumption that nearly everyone on all sides makes that gun ownership and homicide rates are correlated, which and it turns out to be simply incorrect. As B.J. Campbell explained in his piece, everybody's lying about the link between a gun ownership and homicide. So, and how cosmetic rifle bans are silly and authoritarian. authoritarian, authoritarian huh, that's a word. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, open source defense is a gun rights group. We say this too. So, people are talking about that gut-wrenching emotional horror so the gun control crowd will fight back and say um, the sense of helplessness and all the rest and it rolls up into a feeling there's only so much time in a day and I don't know all the details about this stuff I just know that we have to do something and it's it's tempting to just go with that he's like we got to do something and so maybe this will go away but what can you do that makes it go away it's too much momentum. Everyone's talking about it. If you go on social media today and this week, it's going to be over and over again how people feel we should react to it. Um, the good, insightful question is um, it's about guns. You know, um, honestly, like if somebody wants to kill a bunch of people, they could also use a bomb. They could, there's lots of ways. Um, easiest way is probably guns, but it doesn't mean that if we banned all guns that there there wouldn't be another way. Okay? I'm going to just put that out there right away. But what the author says is, wait, what is going on with the mass shootings? 
Why are they happening? Why are they happening so much? So he ties it into the Vienna subway suicides. So what's interesting about this is suicide actually had kind of a similar play. The way that um, the media would react to the suicides would lead to more people killing themselves. So in Vienna, they had this um, subway called the U-Bahn, and it opened in 1978. And they built it out for the next few years, and then the entire thing then um, was ready and done in 1982. And by the mid-1980s, those uh, subway tracks became a locally well-known tool for people to kill themselves. And they said a sharp increase in the number of subway suicides in Vienna was linked to the dramatic increase in their coverage in the media. In 1987, the Austrian Association for Suicide Prevention launched a media campaign to change the amount and nature of press coverage. Okay. I'm going to go back. Here we go. So after June 1987, the Austrian press did either did not report the subway suicides at all or covered them in short reports in the inside pages. So they minimized it, made it less dramatic. So during the years of the sensational news coverage, there were up to nine sub- subway suicides in six months' time. So after the sensational coverage ceased, there was between one and four subway suicides per six-month interval. So it, it at least cut by half. And, and you know, it's humans, right? Somebody is going to just kill themselves. But to think that this possibly could have changed people thinking about doing that that way. Now, did these people who killed themselves the the other half did they do it another way maybe or maybe they didn't do it at all that would be the hope so another study in the archives of suicide research found that after the implementation of the subway system it became increasingly acceptable as a means to commit suicide there was a sharp increase and then the mass media reported it and people go oh look they're remembered and they would go and do it but the media reports changed, and then it dropped more than 80%. And so this is my, that was my question, is that were they doing it some other way? No. Like 80% of the suicides stopped. You know, that's kind of crazy. To the second half of 1987, remaining at a rather low level since. So because of the way the media reacted to suicide, they, they cut it way down. Which makes me really rethink some of the things I, I've thought about um, that 13 Things you know, show, that one where the girl killed herself. I wonder, you know, having shows like that, if it makes people who are um, susceptible to suicide do that. Although the, the part of me that wants free speech also thinks that it's good to have something so you can talk about it. So maybe tying it into conversations is the, the best way of dealing with it. But hey, I digress. That, it's just um, interesting to me to see the reduction in um, Im- the imitation suicide um, by influencing mass media. 
can be drawn. Experiences from the media campaign are presented, as well as considerations about further research. So another thing that happened that was very similar to this is in the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Um, so many people killed themselves jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge that they had to deliberately stop publicizing suicides there. Copycat suicides are so well studied that the phenomenon has been named the Werther effect. After a character in the 1700s, late 1700s, that um, who said to inspired a bunch of copycat suicides. Um, modern studies suggest that celebrity suicides have the same effect today. So after someone like Robin Williams killed himself, there was an associated 12.8 increase in suicides in August and September of 2014 and a 25.5 increase in suicides attributable to suffocation during those months. So they, they saw him do it in the news, and then they thought that's a good way to go, and they did it the same way, which is horrific to me. So today, most media organizations opt in to suicide coverage guidelines drafted and promoted by major mental health organizations. An excerpt of the National Alliance on Mental Illness they say, inform, don't sensationalize, don't include suicide in the headline. For example, um, like when Kate Spade died, they said Kate Spade dead at 55. They didn't have suicide in the headline. Um, don't use images of the location or method of death, grieving loved ones, memorials or funerals, and instead use school, work, or family photos. And if there is a note from the deceased, do not detail what the note contained or refer to it as a suicide note. And they say to choose your words carefully. So when describing research on studies of, on suicide, using words like increase or rise rather than epidemic or skyrocketing, do not refer to suicide as successful, unsuccessful, or failed attempt. Do not use the term committed suicide. Instead, use died by suicide, completed suicide, killed him or herself, or ended his or her life. And do not describe a suicide as inexplicable or without warning. So what they are saying with this is that um, it can spread as a social contagion, which I think is the most interesting part of this, is that things like suicide or terrorism or um, mass shootings are actually a social contagion. That there's reasons that we see it in big groups. We see it, um, and, and I'm sure this isn't probably the last we'll see of it in, in the next month or so. There'll probably be something similar. Um, but on the other side of that, then police, local police, will be looking for it. So... So it works for suicide. How about for killing other people? And this is really interesting in this article. They talk about um, there's a wave of ISIS attacks that happened in Europe a few years ago. And they had um, they checked the gut feeling against actual data. And it says a vast majority of the victims died in attacks in Middle Eastern countries. But the scope of this inquiry is how a meme in the selfish gene sense translate into real world violence. In other words, how the ISIS meme translated into violence in countries where ISIS could support attacks largely only through ideas, not material. So they show a huge jump on death in 2015 and 2016, and then it drops off considerably 2017 and then almost 
fades back into nothing this year. So the chart tracks the six to 12 month basis, but why, why would that be? Why did it go up so fast? And then it, it dropped. Um, it says ISIS attacks is that the attacker pledged allegiance to the group. So functionally, this graph could largely be titled loners who rent a truck or get a gun or make a bomb, shout something about ISIS, and then kill people, 2014 to 2019. And people aren't talking about ISIS as much now. ISIS's con contribution was just the awareness that this is a thing that one can do. So there's no reason that it should have changed from 2014 to 2019 because it still exists. The internet still exists. People pretty much post whatever they want and information spreads. So the nuance is that ISIS's contribution was just the awareness that this is a thing that one can do. And I think that may be a lot more powerful than we think. So the declaration of, hey, this is a thing. If you're part of this, you're part of something. So people want to be a part of something that's human. That's very human. So even if it's evil and where you murder people, you're still a part of something. So most people aren't smart enough or with it enough to go like looking for, like, I need to find an organization to join. You know, a lot of times you join groups that your friends are in that, you know, you see something on TV and go, I should do that. And I'm sure like that's part of what people were thinking of when they saw ISIS. So um, contrary to popular belief, the people who commit mass murder aren't necessarily mentally ill. So this is one of the things that they throw out in the news over and over is that these people are crazy, obviously to kill so many people. Um, or having a, not in the sense of having a diagnosable condition. Some do, some do. Some people, like they, it's untreated mental illness. But most don't. I mean, they planned. Like the guy, I think in El Paso, actually didn't post anything till social media till he was pretty much in the parking lot about to do what he was going to do. He didn't want people to catch him. That's not someone who's just like has a hair, crazy hair to go do something. It's someone who plans and is rational. And that's the difference. So is it, is it normal? Hell no, it's not normal, but it is like the thing that they say over and over that they, they hit the mental illness drum. And I don't think it's as much as they think it is. So what is the common thread is that they're all almost, almost all of them are frustrated losers. They, and this, this is the article saying, the anguished virgin, virgins, the disgruntled husbands who explode and kill the extended family, the racist killing the out-group that he feels is threatening his in-group, the religious zealots doing the same, and for that matter, the impoverished high schooler who kills a classmate after school over some trivial slight or a husband who kills his wife both of which awfully happens hundreds of times more than mass shootings. There's frustration leads people to do these terrible things. So the shape changes, but the mass stays constant. A hopeless loser who feels like he or his group are losing, thinks he spots who's to blame, 
and decides he's going to show everyone that, damn it, he's not the loser that you and subconsciously he thinks he is. So how how does this tie into the ISIS-inspired attacks? Um, joining no longer gives people, see, I'm not a loser validation. If you don't see anything like in the news about that group, or every time you see it, if that people are making fun of them, they're the losing team. So people kind of start fading away because they thought right in the beginning, like, oh, wow, they're doing so many things. It's cool. But after a while, you see that they, they're they not a group you want to be associated with. And even if you tell people, they go, why would you do that? Here's a really cool part of this um, story. There's a history around how the KKK was embarrassed nearly out of existence in the mid-20th century. They went from being, especially like in the South, group that um, the wealthy and the the privileged were a part of. And there was a PR campaign, campaign in Superman comics. Everyone loves Superman, right? Superheroes. He cast the KKK secrets and rituals as pathetic jokes, which helped turn membership in the group from I'm part of a thing to I'm a loser that people make fun of. So people actually stopped joining the KKK because it, the, the public perception changed so radically. So in ISIS, what they did was a kind of an idea. The Danish city of our house had a problem. Lots of their young Muslims are going to Syria to join ISIS. In 2012, there were 34 of them, to be exact. And the city was smaller than Tampa, you know, so it's not, not a lot of people. So there's a pretty sizable group of, of, of young Muslims joining ISIS. So our house solved the problem. The local police put together a program to integrate themselves into the Muslim community. And they were identifying at-risk youth. And they were recruiting community members as ambassadors. They went deep on identifying root causes of marginalization. My words are not so good today. And on using those trusted ambassadors, people in the community um, that uh, young people look up to, right? So they use the ambassadors as a base of a support system for the marginalized people, for people who felt like losers. And they got results. So before the program started, 34 people from our house flew off to join ISIS. After the program, that went down to just one. So reaching out to people, making them feel human and loved, a part of the community, is a way of changing this freaking crazy future that we're putting ourselves onto. We have to start caring about other people. And when you know you live in a community where people are hurting and they feel like they're losing jobs, that's the time to start reaching out to young, especially young people. They're very um, open to suggestion and new ideas and putting them on the path towards light and good can just, it can save lives later. I mean, let's be honest. So, that that's that's a leap, right? You're just like, how does this tie into a somebody shoots like mass murder? You know, how does it stop that? Um, we need to not make this a thing. Like, okay, 
last was it last week? Two weeks ago, I think it was two or three weeks ago in Japan, a mass murderer burned 35 people to death in Japan. But it was out of the news cycle within a couple days where we will keep talking about this over and over. We'll talk about the gunmen. We'll talk about um, the reasons over and over and over and over again. So it's going to get into people's heads. So why did they stick in our heads? Why do we worry more about being in a mass shooting than a car accident? People, you're more likely, 280 more times likely to be in a car accident than, you know, being shot in a mass shooting or even murdered, for that matter. Um, the, the chance is just very, very low. But it didn't address why the idea sticks in a would-be shooter's head. Um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote an essay on thresholds. So this is an idea using riots that each person violating a norm publicly makes easier for the next person to do the same. So you see one person did it. Now next I can do that. Sort of like when somebody wins the Olympics and they make a new world record. Nobody could do it before. But then the next year somebody's matching it. And then later somebody will pass it. It's just the way it is. So the threshold has been set, and then people go beyond it. So by laying out a specific vision of how to do it and demonstrating, hey, it's a thing, people do copycat behavior. And the word copycat is kind of new participants as as an epidemic act in a manner identical to the source of their infection. But these people are not, um, as it spreads, starting with a hot-headed rock drawer, ending up with an upstanding citizen, then rioters are profoundly uh, heterogeneous group. So this model suggests that riots are sometimes more than spontaneous outbursts. If they evolve, it means that they have depth and length and a history. So the threshold hypothesis could be used to describe anything, like anything we do, like from elections to strikes, um, to even like people decide what time to leave a party, you know, expectations and thresholds are ingrained in human behavior. Um, in 1978, long before teenage boys made a habit of wandering through their high schools with assault rifles. But what if the way to explain the school shooting epidemic is to go back and use this, uh, it's called a model, it's a Grenovetarian model, to think of it as a slow motion, ever evolving riot in which each new participant's action makes sense in reaction to and in combination with those who came before. So these things that are happening, they're not in like a little bell jar off on their own. It's, it's in reaction to other things that have happened. They see it. They think that's a good idea. This is how I'll do it. This is how I'll improve it. This is how I'll do it differently. And so it kind of comes to, you know, you remember Columbine with the the kids shooting, right? Um, It's a script. So kids see the script and they think, kids that have high thresholds for this, they go, yep, I totally identify with those guys. I I feel it. I'm going to, I want to do the same thing. And so it makes it more accessible to them because they see it over and over again. Um, 
the kid who's a shooter is not a psychopath. He's a nerd. And 40 years ago, he'd be playing with his chemistry set in his basement and dreaming of being an astronaut because that's what the cultural narrative of the moment was. But now he's dreaming of blowing up schools. He did not come up with that by himself. He got it from the society of which he's a part, and we're responsible for that. So they go on to talk about, there's a lot of data about this phenomenon. And it's extremely understandable hysteria about mass shootings, because we're all terrified by it, right? It's tragically self-reinforcing. So the more fear that we have, the more power we put into it, the thoughts that go with it, the the anger, the, the trying to understand the motives. And then, of course, we humanize the motives. But it's making it so these kids identify with it and they think they're going to do it too because they see this threshold as being something that they could do. So it's, it's contagious. And we got to make this less contagious. Just like a virus just like bacteria that's infecting you, you need to see where it's coming from and cleanse it. And by cleansing it, it's not getting rid of what happened because it happened. It totally happened. But it's taking away power from the individuals who are doing that. So there's a mathematical model Researchers at Arizona State University analyzed news reports of gun-related incidents from 1997 to 2013. And the investigators applied this mathematical model and found that shootings that resulted in at least four deaths launched a period of contagion. So it says marked by heightened likelihood of more bloodshed, lasting an average of 13 days, roughly 20 to 30% of all such violence took place in these windows. So two weeks, you'll see more violence. It's almost like it goes, oh, see, they're doing it. I got to go do this now. And they're, it's not like they're not getting coverage. You know, the mass killers, they received approximately $75 million worth of media coverage value that for extended periods following their tax, they receive more coverage than professional athletes and only slightly less than television and film stars. So they are super famous for that period of time. For those two weeks, they're superstars. And that's what's driving people to do it, is that the love, that being something, being a part of something. And, and it's horrible. So during their attack months, some mass killers receive more highly valued coverage than famous celebrities, and they name a bunch, and it's all people you know. And it's it seems like, unfortunately, the media attention is like free advertising for mass killers that does increase the likelihood of copycats. So if the mass media and social media enthusiasts make a pact to no longer share, reproduce, or retweet the names, faces, and detailed histories of killers, we could see a dramatic reduction in mass shootings in the span of one to two years. Even conservatively, if the calculations of the contagion models are correct, 
we could see at least one-third reduction in shootings if contagion is removed. Given the profile of mass shooters, we believe levels of mass murder could return to a pre-1970s rate where it was truly an, um, an odd, crazy event out of the blue. It won't be eradicated, but it'll be no longer common. So there's a question about this. This stuff is important to talk about, but how do we talk about it while actively making it less of a thing, actively dismantling the script? And people argue about this. Nobody knows a great answer. How, how do, does word of mouth get out? How does this communication process, how do people um, get recruited for organizations like ISIS or to be in a group where they do mass shootings? How, how, do you, how do we even know how that starts? Um, and there are a couple places that they say in the article to start. Um, when ISIS first came on the scene, um, they played ISIS's execution videos where they would kill people, behead them. And it was graphic and people wouldn't stop talking about it. And you'd see it more. And then if you missed it, you would look it up. And it was horrific. Um but the, it says they would interrupt the like, broadcast to show you. And after a few months of that, the media realized that they were being played, played by the organization, um, and they put a largely successful voluntary blackout on those kind of videos. And it decreased the power of ISIS considerably. So a number of outlets, like the New York Times, Anderson Cooper's show on CNN and others, have become more judicious about publishing personal details of mass shooters. Um, there's uh, Professor Adam Langford has published guidelines for media coverage. The group No Notoriety is doing good work to spread this idea, but there's still a long way to go. Um, there, CNN literally maintains a mass shooter scoreboard on their website, which is very dark and gruesome. Um, even without giving shooters personal publicity, they, we still give their actions enormous attention. So the horrors are newsworthy, but it would be wrong to not discuss them. So what I'm proposing isn't like we'll make it go away. We won't ever talk about shootings and that in the news. But we need to talk about them in a different way. Um, it's like report on facts, tally up numbers, show graphic scenes. No. Um, we don't need this. Nobody knows the full answer yet, but we can be confident um, that no notoriety is a good idea. Um, focus on the people that did heroic things. Focus on um, the, the victims and their families, but make it not hang around so long. You know, we it feels like with these things in the news, it's like when you see a car accident, especially a really terrible car accident, and you're driving by, and the people, they call them rubberneckers, they're like, look, looky-loos, you know, seeing what happened, because we're all drawn to the horror, but it does no good, and we need to get away from um, making the, the shooters into some sort of weird heroes, or giving them celebrity from it. 
I was looking around and there's a website called don'tnamethem.org and it's by uh, I think a Texas law enforcement site, Texas State University actually. And they talk about no, don't sensationalize the names of shooters and briefings. It's journalistically routine to name the killer. It's public record. So it is important to name them, but don't keep talking about them. It's really, once they're captured, it's really no longer part of the story other than a call to action. You know, um, you don't want to have like-minded killers take their plans and make them into deeds. And they talk about the contagion effect like we've been talking about. Um, there's more in an interview at that website. And it, it appears that, yes, news national media coverage does end up increasing the frequency of these tragedies. However, the U.S. Constitution ensures freedom of the press. We cannot legislate restrictions. And, and I don't want that. It has to be a voluntary move. So press agencies, um, they don't report on suicides for that reason. Suicides have been shown to be contagious. So it looks like these kind of events are contagious too. So the plan, you do what matters. Encourage law enforcement and other agencies and organizations to be a part of this. Um, recognize the media outlets that step up to this effort. Um, don't sensationalize a tragedy. Have a general media announcement to get the word out. Um, and then develop a message that anyone can send to the media in the wake of the shooting attack and letters to the editor. One of the things they talk about is um, the suspects are motivated by desire for fame, notoriety, and, rec and or recognition. Um, the media focuses on the attacker. They provide this fame. Uh, the focus allows the attacker to accomplish one of their goals and validates their life and actions. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting talking to my friends, um, there's the Hellenic viewpoint was uh, that when somebody was a murderer, they committed an atrocious crime, they were not talked about again. And that's because in the afterlife, they um, all the good that they've done has been wiped away because no one's mentioning them anymore. So it's a double whammy, you know, they're punished in this life and they're punished in the afterlife. And I thought that was kind of an interesting way of looking at it. And I, I'm going to try more often to not focus on the villains, focus on the heroes. So you take away incentive. Um, they're not going to be recognized in their deaths as they were in their lives. And the media coverage should focus on the victims and the heroes, which I totally agree with. So we're running a little low on time. One of the things I'm going to also post on the Facebook page was uh, understanding each other as humans. And there's a, a really good article that I'm going to share there. Ask Andrew WK. It's my dad is a right wing asshole. But Andrew WK, the performer, who's actually a really smart guy, and I've seen him in concert, and he's actually really cool and thoughtful. So the gist of it is um, not seeing eye to eye, and it's all about, like, me versus them. And I'm thinking about that with a lot of the gun control and the gun owner's rights that I'm seeing on Facebook because of this, and that they can't see each other as people. And approaching the world with love makes a huge difference 
to yourself, to your own well-being, and the people in your life. And it makes you, when you approach empathy, understanding that you're not going to agree on, on issues, but that that person who's saying something that you disagree with isn't evil. They are another human being that has a different viewpoint. And you don't have to be around them all the time. You don't have to be best friends with them. And in fact, you might not even really like them. But that it's not worth it going through your whole life fighting like it's a mad war to, to be right. That love is the way we need to approach things. Um, and putting your emotional energy and your primal passion into things like your family and your friends and love and making things a better place in your world is a way better use of your time than trying to rip people down and spending all of your time on social media, on Facebook, angry at other people. It's a good way of dying early. That's all it is. It's because you're going to give yourself a heart attack. And, you know, I would like you to stay around longer. And it might not be you. You know people who are real picky about stuff and you know I get picky about things too but I have people all the time post comments on my own Facebook page where I'm like I disagree with that and I might say something but I'm not gonna let it wear me down and I hope that you don't let it wear you down either because life is too short to be being in a spiral of terror and anger and um, picking sides. Um, If you have to pick a side, he says, pick the side of love. It's our only, it remains our only real hope for survival and has more power to save us than any other belief we could ever cling to. So if you get anything out of today is love people, love people who think differently than you try to understand them. But you know what? Sometimes you just got to agree to disagree. And you'll do a lot better in life and you'll have a lot less headaches. So think about what I said today. If you have ideas or thoughts about it, please post on Facebook and the Liberty Librarian page. And I'm always happy to discuss more and and give resources if you need it. It's Life is too short, babies. I love y'all. I hope that um, stay safe and hopefully we can start turning this around so we can stop the contagion, make it so people focus on love, and hopefully we'll have a little bit less of this going on in the world. So be safe, and next week I will see you in the same bat channel in the same bat place. Have a great week, and I will talk to you soon. Tune in every Monday with your host, Heather Biederman, for the Liberty Librarian. Liberty Librarian, your home for intellectual freedom news and commentary. Every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Central, and 6 p.m. Eastern. All intellectual.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.